I'm Clint Work, Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs at KEI. Building on last year's Rethinking Korea initiative, in 2024, KEI will continue to explore the evolution of U.S.-Korea relations, Korea's place in the world, rapid changes in Korean society, and a fast-changing geopolitical and strategic landscape. Our guest today is intently focused on the role of armed coercion as a tool of foreign policy employed by both the United States and China, and how other states both perceive and respond to it. James Siebens is a fellow with Stimson Center's Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program, where he leads the Defense Strategy and Planning Project, is the editor of China's Use of Armed Coercion, To Win Without Fighting, a study on China's use of military and paramilitary forces for purposes of coercion, which was published late last year by Rutledge. During our conversation, we discussed a wide range of topics, including the motivation behind his latest book project and what sets it apart from other works on China, key terms and concepts used throughout the book, such as coercion, deterrence, and compellence, the overall content and structure of the book, as well as some of the representative examples of China's use of armed coercion and whether they were effective or not, the application of his analysis to the Korean Peninsula, both historically and in a more contemporary context. And finally, James's concluding thoughts on what the United States has gotten right on China, what it's gotten wrong, and some related policy recommendations. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Well, welcome, James. It's nice to see you. Um, for those listening, James Siebens is a former colleague of mine, and is a fellow with the Stimson Center's Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program, where he leads the Defense Strategy and Planning Project. He's also affiliated with Stimson's Cyber Program and Russia Program, and his research focuses on grand strategy, military coercion, and gray zone conflict. Uh, prior to joining Stimson, he was a data analyst at the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, uh, otherwise known as START, at the University of Maryland, where he contributed to a DOD-sponsored study on gray zone conflict. He's also a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, and holds an MA in International Affairs with the Concentration in Global Security from American University's School of International Service. Also very important and germane to our conversation today, uh, James is the editor of China's Use of Armed Coercion, to Win Without Fighting, which was published by Rutledge late last year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is a study on China's use of military and paramilitary forces for the purposes of coercion. And he's also the co-editor of Military Coercion and U.S. Foreign Policy, The Use of Force Short of War, which is a book on U.S. strategy and military operations since the end of the Cold War, also published by Rutledge in 2020. Actually, I remember when that came out, uh, when I was at Stimson at that time. Um, and I wanted to have you over to KEI, James, to discuss the first of those books, or I guess technically the second of those books, mm -hmm. the first I mentioned, which is China's use of armed coercion to win without fighting. Um, for listeners, we will link uh, on our website both to the book itself, as well as a shorter piece which James wrote on Stimson's website uh, that touches on some key takeaways from the book. Um, and I was interested in the book for a couple of reasons. First, because I've always enjoyed, benefited from 
and I've been interested in, in your work and, and, and uh, the outfit at Stimson of which you're um, uh, an integral part, but also because as I've mentioned to you, I'm initiating my own research project on how the US-South Korea alliance is situated uh, in relation to, to US-China relations broadly, but specifically to the question of a potential conflict over Taiwan. Um, and so your book, uh, the recent book launch event that you had, all the above is very hel helpful sort of homework for me as I deepen my research on the broader problem sets and challenges uh, within the wider region. Um, so before we explore the Korea angle to the book um, and how it fits into the analysis, I wanted to ask about some of the motivations behind the book, uh, what sets it apart from other accounts, um, ask you to define some key terms and concepts. We hear some of them used so often, but it's not always clear what is meant by them, and sometimes people mean different things. Uh, maybe summarize some of the content and chapters and some of your own uh, sort of key cases, what you see as representative cases, and then we'll jump more deliberately into the Korean peninsular angle. Um, so getting right into it, um, what, what initially motivated the book project uh, on China's use of armed coercion, and what sets it apart from other accounts and analysis on China, and why is that distinction important? Thanks very much, Clint, uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the previous book in your introduction because uh, that kind of uh, set the stage for this study. So uh, the work that I did with Dr. Barry Blechman and Dr. Melanie Sisson in the previous study, Military Coercion and U.S. Foreign Policy, uh, looked at the post-Cold War military operations the U.S. undertook short of sustained armed conflict, maybe represented best by Iraq and Afghanistan, um, in an attempt to apply political pressure on other governments over human rights abuses or nuclear proliferation programs, um, those sorts of purposes of military intervention that didn't necessarily prompt the overwhelming use of conventional military force, but did involve uh, limited interventions and uh, escalatory signaling, mm -hmm. let's say. Okay, so deployments, um, accelerated military exercises or uh, exercises that involved, you know, revealing new capabilities or demonstrating advanced capabilities. Um, for purposes of increasing the perception of threat, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think we'll, we'll talk more about key concepts in a little bit, but the core motivation for this study on China was to continue that same kind of research agenda to understand how the other great military power in the world, mm -hmm. besides the United States, has used its armed forces for purposes of applying political pressure on, on its neighbors. And um, that's both to kind of continue to contribute to our theoretical understanding of the utility of military force, uh, but also to allow some kinds of points of comparison to be made, perhaps, between the U.S. experience and China's experience. Mm -hmm. um, now, in terms of the kind of theoretical domain, both of these studies are uh, building on the work of scholars like Thomas Schelling, who uh, advanced the concept of coercive bargaining, mm -hmm. 
uh, and the uh, scholarship of Alexander George, who advanced the concept of coercive diplomacy, um, leveraging military threats alongside diplomatic engagement and demands uh, to try to motivate interlocutors to basically uh, accede to a, a set of policy preferences. Yeah. And Alexander George also also uh, on a great scholar of how to uh, conduct historical case studies and process tracing methods, which have been critical to my own research as well. Mine as well. Yeah. That's, that was actually my first exposure to Alexander George's yeah. work was through case studies. Yeah. yeah. Methodology, I should yeah. say. Yeah. Um, what do you think sets this apart from, yeah, obviously there's, I don't want to say cottage industry. Uh, there's a lot of ink that's been spilt and, and, and I'm sure more so on, on China, um, on the region, um, on the potential for conflict and course of activities, you know, uh, short of war. Um, but, but what sets this particular account apart? Yeah. So uh, I think that uh, we've approached this topic uh, with a focus on a specific sort of band of China's military activity. It, the, the focus of the study is not on how China wages war um, or just on China's military modernization efforts um, or its economic growth. You know, a lot of studies on China focus on these other kind of elements. This study is focused on what China has actually done actually using done. the armed forces that it actually has over the last two decades. Uh, so it's a much more kind of grounded in recent experience and attempting to draw lessons from that recent experience about the ways in which China thinks about the utility of, of military force. Um, so it's, the, uh, it's among only a few studies that focus on specifically uh, uses of armed force short of armed conflict uh, and attempt to learn about the political utility of armed force rather than China's ability to deliver uh, victory through certain modernization steps or through certain operations or, um, you know, the uh, sort of prognosticating about the, the, the likelihood of China's success. We're looking at what China has attempted to achieve using force short of war and what the political and diplomatic and military results of those efforts have been. Yeah. And based on a very, and which we'll get into more in a bit, a, a very comprehensive data set that you and your co-authors put together, um, focus especially on the last 20 plus that, years. That's if right. I'm not mistaken, right? So, yeah. The data set includes cases beginning in 2000 and going through 2020. Hmm. I remember when you were in the trenches putting this together hmm. when I was still at Stimson. Um, <laughs> so of particular note, um, I, I took notice of this, and, and you pointed out in the in the start of the book, you sought out deliberately contributions from next generation scholars. And why did you do that? Because I think this is really important. Yeah. So uh, on the one hand, I want to acknowledge that it's partly due to the fact that those are the people in my network predominantly. Sure. Just um, your own utility. This, yes. Yeah, yeah. Those were the people that I knew and trusted on these issues. And so uh, I wanted to work with other scholars who I knew knew these issues very well. I am not a regional expert, okay? So what I brought to this study was really a methodological approach, mm. a theoretical background and uh, lens to view this kind of activity, and the lessons learned from the U.S. experience 
attempting to learn about kind of what we would say, you know, red team, blue team in, mm -hmm. in the wargaming kind of context. But this is all comp this is all great power competition. And um, it's the primary way that great power competition plays out in the military and security domain, aside from economic competition or just pure politics. Sure. Um, but that speaks to the, the other major motivation for engaging with next generation scholars, which is my feeling that our generation, you know, you and I are contemporaries. Uh, we, we, it is now the appropriate time for our generation to assume responsibility for managing these issues. It is our future and our children's future uh, that is at stake. And um, I don't believe that we should defer those kinds of critical decisions to previous generations who have maybe approached these issues with a deeply embedded kind of Cold War yeah. framework for understanding them. Um, and have a set of historical experiences with uh, these actors mm. um, that may have um, unnecessary and unhelpful impacts on how they would prefer to navigate relations with the U.S. and China, sure. uh, as opposed to the way that you know newer thinking we and, might yes well, how we might approach these issues. I'll save any cheeky editorial comments about aging political leaders for another day. Um, I think our listeners are sophisticated enough to know of, of what I speak. Um, but I think this is a really important, right? It just it, analytically speaking, and then the policy implications, uh, implications that's, uh, you're doing a service, I think, to the broader discussion. Um, so before we do talk about some of the more specific historical, <coughs> excuse me, cases, and of course, the huge battery of more contemporary examples, could you define uh, what you and your contributors mean by quote-unquote armed coercion? It may seem obvious, but but maybe not, and, and, you, and you have a particular definition for it. And then also, also related concepts of deterrence and compellence. Yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Like wh what do we mean by coercion short of war? So in brief – Coercion is an effort to uh, advance a foreign policy aim through the use of uh, what uh, Barry Blackman and his co-author Stephen Kaplan in Force Without War, which was published in 1978, uh, described as demonstrative force. Okay, So military force that is employed for purposes of shaping perceptions of an adversary rather than delivering some particular end state, okay? okay? Rather than imposing an outcome on an adversary, this is an effort to use the military as a means of persuasion to sort of imply or directly threaten future costs, mm -hmm. and yet which leaves the decision over the policy with the, the target of coercion. So uh, this is obviously either using the armed forces independently or in combination with diplomatic overtures, economic sanctions, other other tools of statecraft. But the objective of using it in a coercive way is to persuade the adversary that they will uh, either not benefit from their current course enough to, dis to dissuade them from continuing to pursue the current course 
or to convince them that undertaking a course of action would be detrimental to their interests, uh, that there would be uh, insurmountable or unjustifiable costs associated with certain policy choices. Mm. So you also in the book talk about in some chapters explore different political uses of the armed forces that are not necessarily coercive yet still do contribute to international influence more broadly in terms of general deterrence yeah. and grand strategy. You sort of alluded to it a second ago. Could you maybe unpack that a little more? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, here I think uh, a lot of the activities that the United States has traditionally undertaken under the rubric of military operations other than war mm. um, are really important to understand because these are ways in which the armed forces attempt to contribute to broad foreign policy goals through building closer relationships with allies and partners uh, or through uh, demonstrating goodwill to other countries. Uh, and so sp specifically, I'm talking about you know, holding joint military exercises with our allies, especially in times of uh, crisis or controversy uh, when they may benefit politically from some reassurance from the United States. Uh, but obviously, China also engages in joint military exercises with some of its partners, sure. um, especially under the auspices of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They, they hold international counterterrorism operations uh, or, or exercises, I should say, um, practicing for cooperation on those kinds of issues. Um, with friends and neighbors. Uh, there's participation in international peacekeeping operations as a, as a means of demonstrating commitment to global norms or international uh, stability. And they are the largest contributor of troops among the permanent five. Oh, that's right. The among Council. the P5 as well, right? Mm -hmm. do, do you recall by chance when when they became that, when they became the, the largest contributor? This is a development within the last decade. I don't recall what year they became the largest contributor. It's really evolved quite quickly though over the last 10 to 15 yes. years. Though. So right. Ch China views, and this is something that I, I write about with a colleague of mine, Jesse Marks, who's also a, a non-resident at mm -hmm. Stimson. China regards its contributions to international peacekeeping operations as kind of providing uh, dual benefit. It simultaneously demonstrates that China is a responsible great power in their in their terms, right? That they are contributing to goals of international peace and security and stability through providing troops and expertise and funds for UN peacekeeping missions. And it also provides their forces with uh, some practical experience conducting overseas operations, and it provides the, the PLA as a whole with uh, practical experience uh, providing logistical support to forces in the field. Uh, just transportation and sustainment is, is such a critical element of military operations, and yet China doesn't have large overseas bases in abundance that it sure. is, you know, used to maintaining and um, as does the unlike you know, the US of course that's that's right so China's attempting to learn in a kind of an opportunistic way from 
participation in the few kind of international missions like this that they are a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing to be aware of is that China uh, has placed a lot of emphasis on its kind of principled aversion to uh, military intervention abroad. These international peacekeeping operations are the kind of rare exceptional case for them where there is a kind of morally and legally justified deployment of Chinese military forces abroad. Yeah, questions of of stark questions of sovereignty and domestic interests that they jealously defend themselves. They don't want to be seen as that's right. Infringing here, upon that too concertedly elsewhere. Exactly. So here in, in international peacekeeping operations, there's host state consent. Uh, there may be contentious and coercive elements to some of these missions, but principally- Sudan in particular, there yes. may be some oil interests there. That's right. There may so. be ulterior uh, motivations for uh, providing- a stabilizing yes. force. There are always ulterior motives at some point or another, and sovereignty <laughs> has its exceptions, right? It's, yes. a, it's a matter of scale and degree. I don't want to get off no, too much well, of a side, well yeah, side tangent, but that's um, well, yeah. I, I'll, I'll I, I'm the one to keep us going, so I will I will uh, corral myself and keep myself going. Uh, can, can I throw in one more yeah, piece? Yeah, please here? Do, yeah, please so do, yeah. Humanitarian assistance and disaster relief is the last yeah, category that I'll mention, uh, but it's because um, China has. Uh, historically relied on like civilian transport mm. to evacuate Chinese nationals overseas. And we've seen in more recent years following uh, Libya was the first, I think, major case. Almost 40,000 Chinese nationals, right? Yes. And and uh, they used PLA transport mm. uh, to evacuate some of those folks. This was the first instance of this, right? That's my, that's my uh, understanding. Okay. So, in Libya and in Yemen and uh, in in other kind of more recent crises, there has been a role for the Chinese military in evacuating and, and protecting Chinese nationals overseas and also providing um, other countries with some assistance in evacuating their own uh, citizens if they don't have the capacity to do that. So again, this twofold benefit sure. of one, you know, improving China's ability to deliver on its own national security interests and protect its own citizens, which you know doesn't hurt if you have a robust program of encouraging overseas investment and overseas uh, worker uh, presence. Sure. Um, and then secondly, demonstrating its kind of capacity to contribute internationally. Yeah. This is too much to do in one question, so I've asked you to briefly mm-hmm. summarize, uh, if, if you could, that the three informal sections that you yeah. sort of break the book down into and their main contents. And and, and then I'll follow up with, with the question about sort of representative cases and how effective or, or not this has been, but maybe just break down the overall format and content of the book. Sure. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, in terms of the design of the study, uh, the first section attempts to describe kind of this conceptual space, armed coercion, short of war, um, focusing on the 21st century uh, principally, um, in, and, then demonst- and then provides this uh, statistical analysis of all of the instances of armed coercion, short of war that we were able to identify through open source research. Mm-hmm. 
And so it, the, this, the first section of the book kind of lays out the theoretical domain, you know, what kinds of cases are we looking at? Uh, as I mentioned, you know, military signaling, the use of military exercises or demonstrations of capability and that sort of thing. Um, and then we have uh, we had the good fortune of getting uh, Dr. Ketian Zhang from George Mason University to contribute a chapter dealing with China's approach to coercion and the sort of um, what she sees as the trends, patterns, and implications of China's use of coercion, uh, especially in the security domain, and then this statistical analysis. Um, and then the second section lays out a number of historical case studies to kind of illustrate how uh, these kinds of operations function in, in practice. Um, and this began with a series of uh, short case studies on the last several times that China has actually gone to war, has employed large-scale military force. One of the challenges with undertaking this study uh, compared with the U.S. study, the U.S. engaged in numerous large-scale military interventions in the post-Cold War period. China has not gone to war of any significant scale since 1979. Sure. Whereas the U.S. has been at war the overwhelming majority of you and my lifetimes. lifetimes yes. Yeah, lifetimes. Um, so that was a meaningful difference. And in order to uh, attempt to, I guess, account for the fact that China has gone to war, has decided to use large-scale uh, military force in the past, uh, we looked at the period leading up to China's intervention in Korea. Which we'll circle back to in a bit, yeah. Okay. Um, as well as its intervention uh, or invasion by, by some accounts of India in 1962 along their contested border and its invasion uh, in Vietnam in 1979. And uh, the purpose of undertaking those case studies, even though they fall outside the proper period of interest, was simply to understand how China signals its intention to go to war and whether it is using its military in combination with diplomatic uh, overtures or coercion um, in the lead up or in advance of uh, decisions to use military force. Um, and then we looked at China's efforts to coerce and intimidate Taiwan, uh, including in the quote unquote, third Taiwan Strait crisis from 1995-96 sure. as another major case study falling outside the proper period of focus, but still uh, a critical case, you might argue, sure. um, as well as more recent efforts targeting Taiwan. And then uh, looked at the dispute over the Senkaku Jiaoyu Islands uh, between China and Japan and looked at China's efforts to uh, assert claims in the South China Sea, broad claims around this nine dash, now 10 dash line. Sure. Um, and we looked at a uh, case study of the last several border clashes with India, all of which uh, occurred in the 21st century. Um, so this was looking at the 2013, 2014, 2017, and 2021 cases uh, where Chinese and Indian forces we're really squaring off in the Himalayas, uh, jockeying for position and that sort of thing. 
Um, and then lastly, I looked at um, how uh, you know how China has basically approached coercing the United States, which is a, a diff in a different league compared to most of the kinds of interactions that China has had uh, in the South China Sea or East China Sea, for example, um, and also how China has approached military operations other than war, as I mentioned earlier, as a kind of tool of statecraft or, or a means by which it can uh, engage uh, its security forces in pursuing foreign policy and influence uh, goals. And then a final chapter with some nice sort of key policy implication takeaways. So in all of that, I wanted to just borrow down a, a bit and ask, you know, what, what do you look at as some representative examples of China's use of, of armed coercion and, and you know, the how, when, and why, um, as well as to what effect or result uh, China has used armed force to coerce its neighbors or others, and you know how effective or ineffective has this been? Yeah, so I think uh, I would similarly group uh, my responses to that question in kind of three categories. There's the high stakes conventional conflict, kind of uh, uh, hot button issue of Taiwan. And that is in a category all to itself and is uh, difficult to disentangle from US-China relations. But I think that uh, in that space, um, both China and the United States have, and Taiwan, I should say, have all kind of uh, indicated, demonstrated, a desire to avoid armed conflict while at the same time demonstrating con continued commitment to their own kind of political goals, which are arguably kind of irreconcilable differences, right? Incompatible yeah. goals. Uh, so there's been a lot of, in my view, prudent tiptoeing around the Taiwan issue um, and that most of the military coercion involved in the Taiwan issue has been larger, have, have more serious implications, mm -hmm. and has been sort of less frequent, less, less um, I wouldn't characterize it as brinksmanship. I would characterize it as consistent kind of signaling yeah. uh, under specific Conditions, although yeah, not not brinksmanship yet, but clearly the trends for anyone taking a cursory glance at this or a more thorough process tracing analysis that you provide in the text, we've gone from tiptoeing to these are more full steps now, so to speak, to yeah. to stretch the analogy, yeah. even if not some foot stomping here and there. Right? I think that's well put. I'm thinking about the Nancy Pelosi's visit and you know and and, and what's now become the new normal. In China signaling and and U.S. signaling too. So no, that's that's exactly right. And uh, I actually call the sort of sub case study looking at the twenty to uh, twenty twenty to twenty twenty two period mm. um, as culminating in the quote unquote Pelosi crisis. Okay, uh, which it's all her fault. Well, it's uh, I, it's I'm, an I'm, being, I'm joking for our, <laughs> yeah, for it, our it's, it's an it's. Uh, 
a foreseeable and it was foreseeable kind of a crisis. Um, and we walked through how exactly that came about and what preceded it and what followed it. Um, the second category of cases I want to mention, um, I would describe as kind of maritime coercion. These are East China Sea, South China Sea cases in which China, uh, in some cases, is attempting to establish exclusive control over certain features. And in other cases, it's attempting to uh, contest control or, uh, you know, and specifically uh, in the case of the Senkaku Jiao Yu dispute, uh, break Japan's previous exclusive control. Um, and this is all pursuant to what's often described as a lawfare strategy, where China has uh, essentially concluded that it has the best case, uh, the best legal case for asserting territorial claims if it can establish that it has had physical presence over an extended period of time. And so it has set about establishing, establishing that physical, physical presence. presence. You sort of reverse engineer the, the legal logic. That's right. And then you change uh, domestic laws as well. Um, to say that nobody can say, yeah. nobody can take this territory from us. And um, and then use international fora as well to, to reinforce this message. Exactly. Yes. And, and also by virtue of that presence, deprive the other claimants of their ability to say that they have exclusive presence or exclusive control. And also just sort of try to so muddle the situation over time, right? So customary law is based on custom, but you sort of slowly uh, alter the custom over a long enough period of time. And now it's, there are new customs or at the very least contested ones. Yes. And it's not entirely clear what, what is customary and, and, and yeah. That, that's exactly right. I think that, that this circumstance and this kind of uh, approach that China has undertaken is usually what U.S. Uh, defense practitioners and policymakers are referring to when they say that China is trying to overturn the world order or that they are a revisionist power, etc. This is the revisionism. This is the main form that that revisionism takes is this effort to contest uh, exclusive territorial control within other countries' recognized uh, legal boundaries um, through persistent presence, through establishing this kind of um, regular patrols uh, around those features and interfering with other countries' ability to exercise their own legal and economic rights within those areas. The Philippines, for example. The Philippines, for example, right. So there's an ongoing, um, I guess I would call it like a slow moving crisis around the second Thomas Shoal. Uh, we've seen a lot more coverage of that issue in part due to a change in the Philippines strategy of uh, countering China's uh, activity by shining a bright spotlight on it. Mm. Um, so there's been more kind of open source press coverage of that issue. It actually has been going on for more time. than a decade. Yeah. The New York Times has covered it a lot lately, but it, but it has been going on for much longer. That's right. Um, and we, we can get into the weeds on what exactly is at stake there, but it is very much uh, 
in this same vein of China attempting to assert jurisdictional rights or uh, territorial rights inside the exclusive economic zones of other countries. So you mentioned three K, three sort of types of buckets. With the, the last, the third one. The third one is India, mm. where there is essentially a contest over uh, presence and kind of access. It's it's. Um, the crises along the contested Sino-Indian border uh, originate with the McMahon line left by British, the British yeah, yeah. Uh, colonialism, which the independent government of India accepted as kind of a, an established international boundary and which the People's Republic of China rejected saying that the government of China had never agreed to that demarcation. And so it's basically uh, there's a there's disagreement over whether or not there is an agreed upon border. And uh, so both sides have essentially attempted to improve their ability to get access to these remote areas in the Himalayas um, by building roads um, and airfields and helipads and attempting to get troops out into these camps in the mountains. And whoever is sitting on that hill today owns that hill. And so when one side conducts a patrol and establishes a base camp or builds an, uh, an observation post, uh, the other side will often go out to the other and say, you're not supposed to be here. This is inherent Chinese territory, et cetera, et cetera. And physical and, altercation and clash as well. That's right. So that has that has more frequently re, uh, led to uh, physical altercations and kind of what I'll describe as kind of positional competition, right? Who has the most tactically advantageous position vis-a-vis -vis the other side? Uh, now that those clashes have turned deadly, uh, and it's not too much of a stretch to say that there is the potential for a genuine war over that border if both sides get sloppy. Um, but for the time being, they have managed to lower the temperature. Uh, but China has basically seized some portion of the uh, contested border area and that uh, has placed the onus on India basically to make the next move. And India has thus far chosen not to escalate. So it, you, you've sort of touched on some of this in, in the response you just gave, but maybe bigger picture, and it's tough to ask a bigger picture because there are different buckets in which this falls you know, mm -hmm. the, with the question of effectiveness, yeah. but how has, China's course of activity been effective or ineffective or even counterproductive? Yeah. And maybe some key examples. And then I'm going to turn to the, the Korea angle. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think in the cases of India and Taiwan, China has had some measure of success in uh, establishing its kind of uh, deterrence posture on the issues, right? It has made clear to the Indian side that uh, there are certain areas 
that India should not patrol into and should not establish outposts or, or the Chinese side will go and dismantle those outposts or will create a, a confrontation. Um, and with respect to Taiwan, it has uh, essentially deterred Taiwan from declaring independence, which you know, at least the previous administration and the newly elected administration both might prefer to do if they were given a totally free hand. Um, at the same time, there's a kind of rhetorical agree to disagree arrangement between Taiwan and mainland China uh, over the formulation about Taiwan independence. Uh, Taiwan's leaders uh, say that they already have independence and so there's no need to declare there's independence. There's no need to declare because de facto it's already the case. That's right. And China says, don't you declare independence. Uh, and so they can – that's kind of a sustainable status quo as long as nobody colors outside the lines. Um, but uh, – so I guess in that case, nobody has really had their way to their full satisfaction. And the, uh, therefore, to some extent, China has maintained an undesirable outcome for the other side, if you will. Uh, but at the same time, it has not achieved what it would prefer to have as the outcome, which is Taiwan engaging in negotiations over unification or India entering into negotiations over a demarcated border that is mutually agreed upon. So it hasn't achieved the kind of compellent goal of bringing about those negotiations and settling it on terms that China would view as acceptable. Mm. Um, I think that the latter is even more pronounced in the South China Sea and in the East China Sea where Japan continues to reject the idea that there's a territorial dispute over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Uh, the United States has also uh, essentially declared the Senkakus as covered in the mutual, mutual defense treaty, treaty yeah, with Japan. With Japan. Uh, so I think it's pretty clear the U.S. has come down on the side of its ally in that, in that instance. Uh, the U.S. has also come down on the side of the Philippines along with the permanent court of arbitration at The Hague uh, with respect to where – The 2016 – mm -hmm. um, Yes, in 2016, the International Court of Arbitration uh, found that under UNCLOS, uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, the Philippines has all of the islands that it says it has and uh, that the areas that the Philippines claims as its exclusive economic zone are its exclusive economic zone in, in short. There, the South China Sea issue is complex because there are competing – there multiple, are multiple, multiple competing claims. Right? That's it's not right. just China and the Philippines. It's That's right. Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's overlapping claims on some of these features uh, that have not been settled. But China's claims to those features have been rejected. And China has managed through this kind of coercive behavior uh, to anger and alienate a number of these countries. So uh, it's increased – the Philippines' receptivity to hosting U.S. forces. Uh, countries like Malaysia and Indonesia are cooperating more than before on maritime security issues. Vietnam has had a kind of a, uh, I suppose, rapprochement with the United States and uh, has been more receptive to military visits. 
and that sort of thing as a as a way of signaling China that even though it wants to pursue constructive and peaceful relations with China, mm -hmm. it also can't be just intimidated um, without recourse to others uh, who might lend its support. Um, so I think across the board, at least in the maritime space, uh, China's actions have produced as many counterproductive results as they have maybe achieved or established Chinese presence and Chinese economic benefit from that presence. A lot of what China has attempted to do in the South China Sea is protect its own fishing fleets from arrest or harassment or uh, intervention by these neighboring countries who would be within their rights to try to enforce their own exclusive economic zones, um, their own jurisdictional rights within their, econo their exclusive economic zones. China is in turn saying, this is actually our maritime area of jurisdiction. And so you can't harass Chinese uh, fishing fleets in these areas. And in fact, we'll chase your fishermen away if we find them. Um, and so that's a lot of the play is this kind of police mission for enforcing Chinese jurisdiction over economic activity in the South China Sea. Stay tuned for part two of James and I's conversation. For more Rethinking Korea content, please keep an eye on our podcast feed. 